And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, from the land of enchantment where almost anything can happen, has happened, and may in the future happen. In fact, we're going through some very extraordinary things for planet Earth right now, and we will be getting to them shortly. As you know, for those of you who are new to the show, we kind of start the show with some items of news. And as I've been doing now for several weeks since the uh, Christmas weekend, um, we have two items in Radio with Pictures that pertain to the Webb Space Telescope, which was launched in Christmas uh, a couple, three months ago, and is now in the process of commissioning its instrumentation. For those of you who are new, if you want to find out to get to Radio with Pictures, what you do is you uh, click on our URL, the other side of midnight. That will take you to our homepage. Uh, you want to look at the banner for Sunday, March 13th, which is this gorgeous view of the Zimbabwe ru uh, ruins at um, sunset. And it says the 50-year-long hyperdimensional journey of an Emmy Award-winning South African filmmaker and producer, and under the banner is the name Lionel Friedberg. Click on that banner. That will take you to Lionel's guest page. And right under the banner on the guest page, you'll see where it says Fast Links to Items. Uh, click on my name. That takes you down to Radio with Pictures. And there, Items 1 and 2, um, there is a kind of a backgrounder as part of the web NASA blog tonight. They're talking about, there's one investigator who was talking about how he is going to use Hubble. Uh, Hubble. I, I keep doing that. It's Webb, Webb. <laughs> the Webb Telescope, the new 20-foot-wide primary mirror infrared telescope to survey ancient, 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 ancient galaxies. The first galaxies that were born after the proverbial Big Bang, uh, which should be within a couple of hundred million years of that moment in 3D time, and they're, he's going to try to look at what's called the metallicity. What is metallicity? Well, a star like the sun, which is like third, fourth generation, has been able to scarf up in its formation process a lot of interstellar material from previous supernovae in the galaxy, which, uh, you know, stars, you know, cook elements, and then they blow up and they spew the their contents into the interstellar gas and dust clouds and then new stars are born and the new stars incorporate the material that was cooked in the older generations. So the sun is a late generation. What we're looking for with Hubble is Hubble. Webb, I'll get this right, is the earliest moments of star formation where primarily the only elements in the entire universe were hydrogen and helium with a absolutely whiff, just a whiff of much heavier elements from you know, lithium and boron and oxygen and carbon and iron and all those good things. Those are cooked in stars. So Webb is going to be used to look back in time almost to the beginning of what we define as the Big Bang, when things radically changed and the universe we currently inhabit was born, all of which is now going to be reanalyzed with new Webb data. Anyway, 
they're going to appear, you know, billions of years, almost 13.4 or 5 billion years back in time to see when those first stars formed and to see what their percentage of the light elements, hydrogen and helium are, compared to the heavy elements. And the expectation is we will see uh, almost no heavy elements, just a trace, just a tiny, you know, 0.001%, something like that. But science is always about surprises. These are models based on previous observations. What if Webb looks way back to almost the beginning of the current era called the Big Bang and it sees stars, actually it can't see individual stars that far away, but it sees galaxies made of stars, 100 billion or so stars, suppose it sees that their metallicity is much higher than the models predict. What does that tell us? I mean, we'll, we'll get into this, you know, in the next few weeks because Webb is going to do, like Hubble did, usher in a stunning new revelation in um, who we are, where we are, why we're here, all those important, huge, crucial questions, which, of course, is the reason you tune in to the other side of midnight. I guarantee you this program, this radio show, which is broadcast around the world in something like 193 countries, it is unique. I, I dare you to find one other program which even comes close to what we do every Saturday and Sunday night. Item number two in Radio with Pictures is another NASA link. It's kind of where is Webb? Webb is not in the low Earth orbit. Webb is not orbiting the moon. Webb is a million miles away from Earth, away from the sun, orbiting in a lazy six-month-long what's called a halo orbit, um, a point in space called the L2 position. And you can Google what L1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 mean. Uh, Google is your friend, so use Google, and I don't have to say it here. Item number three. Um, we're obviously now uh, a little over two weeks in, 18 days, 19 days, into this catastrophe unfolding in uh, Eastern Europe the Russian war of aggression against uh, Ukraine. And for the first time, there seems to be, from both sides, a glimmer of hope that this can be brought to a reasonably swift end. Um, there are going to be talks uh, this morning at my time, about uh, 2.30 a.m. my time, about an hour and a half after we get off the air, they're supposed to meet again, high-level ministers from both the Russian and the Ukrainian side, and this time they apparently are serious because both sides put out very positive press releases uh, in advance. So let's pray, and I do not use that term lightly, that this insanity comes to an end as swiftly as possible because it is insane. Item number four. Um, a U.S. journalist who was on assignment for Time, who's worked for the New York Times and a whole bunch of major news outlets, a photojournalist uh, who, with his brother, has been covering this war, who is taking pictures of refugees. I mean, we have something like two and a half million refugees created in only uh, the first two weeks of this catastrophe while photo-documenting refugees uh, trying to leave the 
bombarded cities, um, some Russian soldiers at a checkpoint literally shot him, Brent Renault, at point-blank range, killing him uh, and wounding his uh, uh, fellow journalist who was in the car uh, with him. And, of course, this is totally senseless because without frontline journalism, you know, where are we? We don't see anything. In fact, that is a very appropriate segue to my guest of the morning, who is Lionel Friedberg, who is probably um, someone that can relate to uh, what I've just discussed because Lionel, for most of his professional life, has been a journalist, has been a documentarian, has been a filmmaker in all kinds of amazing and not so amazing locations on this planet. And um, uh, let me give you some more background. He's an Emmy award-winning producer and New York Times best-selling author who spent about 50 years making films from uh, in venues as, as diverse as the uh, theatrical features, television documentaries, television series. He grew up in South Africa, which of course is going to be part of my opening gambit of questions, during the much troubled era of apartheid and began his career, his professional television and film career, uh, during the dying days of colonialism. Remember 19th century colonialism that kind of leaked over into the first half of the 20th century in Central Africa. Um, he eventually settled in Los Angeles where his work took him from the sound stages of Hollywood to the most remote regions of the planet. His career has exposed Lionel to an extraordinary series of wonders and brought him into close contact with many unforgettable personalities, from maverick scientists to politicians, from well-known entertainers to people who have literally survived near-death experiences and then told him the details. Lionel's lifelong observations have taught him that, as Haldane once said, life is far more complex and infinitely stranger than we can even begin to imagine. Example, when he was struck by an unexpected life-threatening illness that Western medicine could not, could not confront, his efforts to find a way to save his life took him back to Africa, where he encountered the age-old rituals and healing methodologies of African shaman. In his direct experience, their still mysterious ways to many have much to teach us in the Western world and are as relevant today as they were in ancient times. Lionel Freeberg is the man who brought us famous television shows such as Ancient Mysteries, Mysteries of the Bible, and History's Mysteries for Discovery Channel, History Channel, National Geographic, etc., etc., etc. His latest book, um, uh, and I'll, I'll have that here momentarily, uh, Forever in My Veins, um, is a really interesting deep dive into shamanism, near-death experiences, interviews with the dead, UFO encounters, and all manner of other strange paranormal, you guys know how I hate that word, so you should kind of substitute hyperdimensional experiences in between. Without further ado, Lionel, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Gosh, Richard, uh, what a beautiful intro. Thank you so much. It really is my pleasure to, to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Well, I, I, I really wanted to have you on because we're watching, you know, kind of frontline 
um, early warning radar for those of us on the other side of the planet uh, of what's going on in uh, Ukraine. And early this morning, or I guess late last night, we lost a journalist, Brent Renau. And I just wondered, you've been all over the world, you've been in all kinds of situations. Have you ever felt as a journalist, as a filmmaker, as a documentarian, uh, that you were in a position where literally it was an eye blink between life and death? Uh, the uh, the answer to that is 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 is, is yes, uh, and it and it does not always pertain to conflict such as what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Um, I have been my life has been uh, on, on a on a on a very thin dividing line between survival and death in many instances, but uh, but some of those most of those in actual fact have been because of other reasons such as ships that almost capsized. Uh, and uh, elephants who were charging and, you know, almost being trampled to death by an, a stampeding herd of elephants, things of that nature. I was, in my very early years, in my early years of my career in Central Africa, I did go to the southern part of what used to be the Belgian Congo, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But at that time, when I was up there in Central Africa, the southern part of the Congo was trying to get its independence from the rest of the Congo. And I went to a city called Elizabethville. Today it's called Lubumbashi. But those days, during colonial days, when it was still when it still belonged to the Belgians, uh, Elizabethville was in turmoil. And, you know, there was uh, the city was being torched destroyed there were riots on the streets uh, you know so I've, I've seen the worst and the best of human nature and uh it, it gives you a perspective of you know how capable we humans are of doing amazing and wonderful and extraordinary things and yet the darkness that sometimes is just on the other side of the line you know a lot of folks uh, still go there and uh we don't have to name names but the man behind this awful situation in the Ukraine at the moment, you know, is one of those figures who who can who represents the worst of us uh, and what we're capable of of doing and being. So yes, my life has been in danger, and what you come out with from all of those experiences is a sense of gratitude. And um, if it's a natural disaster or a situation like a storm at sea where the ship may be capsizing any moment. You know, it gives you a respect for the natural world. Um, and so, what can I say? Well, uh, it actually gives you the sense that you're not in control. Even when that, we think we're in control, we're not in control. That is so true. That is so true. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, you learn from those things. Uh, and one has to be always, You, I think another thing that one learns from that is that, you know, you've always got to be prepared. I, I always, uh, I don't say, you know, look over my shoulder all the time because that sounds a little bit, you know, sort of uh, um, 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 uh, as though I'm, I'm obsessed with you know, always checking out what's going on behind me. But be mindful of the fact that you're not always sure of what might happen. So be prepared for anything. The old scout's motto, you know. <laughs> be prepared, yes. It's, it's, it's a truism. And certainly in the film industry, and um, particularly when you when you make documentaries, particularly in, in hostile places and faraway places and places far away from, you know, hospitals and cities and urban areas and all the rest of it, you know, one has to be prepared. You've got to go about that with a sense of respect 
but always be prepared for the inevitable. Because as sure as the sun rises tomorrow, the inevitable can happen at the flash, at the blink of an eye. Um, I've been wanting to ask you this question ever since uh, Gavin contacted me and suggested that you come on. Um, were you born in South Africa? I was. Because ah, nowhere I, in your in the material, I read a lot of background material or tried to, did it say you were born? It said you grew up, that you were there during this incredible transition between the old South Africa and the current modern state, the Mandela state, I guess we could call it. But it never says you were born there. And I didn't want to presume, so that was going to be one of my first questions. What was it like growing up, having been born in, in that particular part of the world at that particular time? I was born in 1944. Um, I'm now 77. Um, I've been around the block once or twice. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, so yes, my childhood was spent in, in during the apartheid era and during the worst years of apartheid because apartheid really began to get particularly ugly after the year 1948 when the Nationalist Party, which was, of course was an all-white uh, political party, came to power, and the 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 followers of that party were essentially, you know, Afri Afrikaans-speaking, as opposed to the English uh, population in South Africa who voted for the opposite party. They gained power, and when that happened, uh, some pretty nasty characters, you know, began to run the country, and. Uh, that's when apartheid was formed. So I saw the worst of it during the 50s and the 60s when laws were entrenched, you know, in the statute books of the country that there would be separate everything for everybody, separate beaches, separate banks, separate, you know, churches, separate entrances to stores, separate trains, separate uh, platforms on the railroad station, everything. This country was divided right down the middle. The twain never met between white and black. It was absolutely impossible for you to socialize with black people. Blacks, of course, worked in the white urban areas as servants or in factories or in industries and so on, but they could not live there unless they had special permission to do so. And when they did, they, it was usually as servants living in a back room, you know, down at the back the bottom end of the garden in a little tiny room. Uh, but can, it, the most people, most, most, the most of the black population lived outside the white cities in what were known as townships that was set up by the political regime to uh, accommodate them. And in the mornings, they would take a train and come into the white urban areas and then work and then go home at night. And uh, heaven forbid, you know, if you broke your curfew, you would be arrested. Uh, so I, I saw all that. And even as a child, and I'll, I'll give you a, an example. Well, of... but before you go, though, let me ask a really dumb question. But yeah. It may not be dumb on the part of a lot of people because um, my preconception was apartheid was a very old institution like slavery was here going back you know 400 plus years are you telling me that it was that white nationalist party in 1948 that introduced the concept of separate but equal or not even equal in south africa yes that's exactly what i'm saying now, so it's within I it's within our lifetimes yes absolutely however ah. however richard bear in mind that uh, 
um, racism and things of that nature have been with us for centuries, you know. Oh, yes. Yeah. From way back. So that's there's nothing new in that. And of well, course, I have some very radical ideas on that. I think that it was been baked in for a very long time as part well, of, of who Absolutely. we really are. I don't yeah. think it's a matter of socialization. I think it's much deeper and yeah. much more pernicious. And yes. again, unless you properly diagnose a problem, you'll never yes. solve it. And I don't think any of the current discussions of racism as yeah. part of the human condition have yeah. approached the level of the deep-seated complex origins of yes. this incredible, uh, horrible aspect of humans. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the caste system in India, that's been around for thousands of years, and that's the same, it comes from the same place. You know, one group of people looking down upon another. It's been around during the, the Greek era, it was around during Egyptian times, it was certainly around during Roman times. So it's been around forever. And once colonialism came to the fore, and foreign countries, and I'm, let's talk about Africa, you know, basically Africa was divided into chunks of territory that were owned and run and controlled by European powers, only because they had the, value, the, 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 the virtue of the gun and the cannon and the local population did not. Right. They took over Africa and in 1880, I think it was, in, at a big conference in Berlin, people sat down with quill pens and cigars and brandy and sat around a big table and divided Africa up into little chunks and pieces and said, this is yours, this is mine, this is, belongs to France, this is Italy's, the Belgians can have that, the Brits can have this, you know, the Germans can have that. And they basically carved up a continent. Um, so it's been around forever. What, what I mean when I say that apartheid goes back to 1948, I'm talking about the official entrenched policy. In other words, legally, by law, there would be no contact between members of society. And that happened in 1948 in South Africa. Okay, course, so hang on, hang on. Let, let, me, let me take you back because obviously this was, you know, literally within in your incredibly early years. So you don't. I, I guess maybe you don't remember, but what was the culture of South Africa with whites and Africans, Native Africans, mingling together, having commerce, having relationships, going to the same schools? What was it like before the Nationalist Party defined two separate races, never the twain shall meet, in '48? Well there was always a division in society, always, you know, the, the whites always stuck to themselves and they had their own hospitals and their own schools. To some extent, um, there was a degree of a sharing of power earlier on. And when, 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 when am I talking about, I'm talking about, you know, probably during the 18th and 19th century where blacks were actually given the right to, to vote for people in power in in certain areas but all that was taken away by apartheid they mm. couldn't participate in the political machinery in other words the who so, runs so so apartheid in 48 was a giant step backward from a slowly developing culture that may have achieved something very different if that had not intervened it's probably a good way of putting it. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I had an interesting conversation today with some folks. I, I'm up in the Bay Area at the moment as I speak ah, to you. And my old people stopping about apartheid. And, you know, apartheid, South Africa is complex. And uh, why? The, the first white settlers who came to South Africa were the Dutch 
and we're going back to the year 1652. And they established a colony down at the Cape of Good Hope, and that became what is now Cape Town and the Cape Province, right? Um, the British settled on the eastern side of the country, and they established a, a, a British colony there, um, at, at which eventually became the province of Natal. So there was always conflict between these two groups of people. Now, we're just talking white upon white. The, 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 the Dutch and the British were always, you know, uh, um, sparring over territory. Were the Afrikaners from the Dutch lineage? They were, they, they were direct descendants. Wait a minute. We have lost your audio. Yes. Can you hear me? Now you're back, yes. So the Dutch were descended directly, uh, the, the Afrikaners were descended directly from the, the original Dutch settlers. Ah. And, and Afrikaans, the language of Afrikaans is, uh, is if, you know, if you, if, you, if you taught Afrikaans as we all were as kids in school and you go to Holland, you can basically understand what people are talking about because it's very closely associated with uh, Nederlands, uh, Dutch. Uh, it's also... Uh, do, you, do you still speak it? Oh, absolutely fluently, fluently. Well, say something. Angenaam uh, mekennis, <laughs> uh, which means it's a pleasure to meet you. Ah. Uh, it's actually a very colorful language, and it's a language that I have a great fondness for because it, the, the language of Afrikaans is, is extraordinary when you use it uh, uh, to um, um, convey humor. It's got a wonderful colorful aspect to it that 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 is absolutely rich and diverse and it's wonderful when you tell jokes or uh you know you basically want to convey a sense of humor afrikaans is is, is one in a million it's a wonderful language <laughs> but it's also a very beautiful language it's wonderful afrikaans poetry there have been great afrikaans poets over the years um so you have this background of dutch and british you know sticking their flags down in the African soil and saying, this is mine and this is yours. And the time eventually came where the Dutch were were, were beaten, were, were taken over. There was a war down at the Cape of Good the, Hope. With the, 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 the Boer War? No, long before that. Ah. I'm talking about the year 1795. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay. 1795. The British decided that they wanted the Cape of Good Hope for themselves. Let's understand one thing. Why was the Cape so important? Well, it, there was, this was before the Suez Canal. Exactly. So it's the halfway station between Europe and Asia and, and the spice routes. Now, remember, there was no refrigeration in Europe. Yep. How do you keep food fresh? Well, you use spices and you, you, you basically, you know, you, 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 you pickle foods, you preserve them with spices. The spice route was absolutely critical to the survival of Europe and the preservation of food, which has made, made the Cape so important as a trade route, as a halfway station, because of the spice trade between Europe and the Dutch East Indies, India, what, what is today Malaysia, the Philippines, and so on, where you get this rich variety of, 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 of foods, of, of spices. And so the Cape of Good Hope was very, very important in terms of trade. And so eventually the British decided, well, you know, the Dutch have owned the place long enough, let's have a war and take it over from them. Well, they did, and then they lost it, and they got to gave it back to the, to the Dutch, but by, in 1806, there was another war, and the British finally won and took over the Cape of Good Hope. So now you have this huge Dutch population living there, and they now have to pay taxes to the king in London. 
and they did not like the idea at all. And so they decided to pack their wagons, very similar to the Calistoga wagons that came across the prairies here in the United States, and they moved away from the Cape of Good Hope into the hinterland of Africa, into the middle of nowhere. In fact, if you looked at maps from those those years, the maps in Latin would say terra incognita. In other words, they have no idea what's there, which is where we get the term Africa, the dark continent, because they knew nothing about what lay in the interior of Africa. So the Dutch moved away from the Cape in order to escape British rule and establish two independent republics for themselves. So now what have you got? You've got a British um, um, uh, uh, um, controlled area in the Cape, and then you've got a British controlled Final. area. We are at yes. the bottom of the hour, so let's pause. Oh. Okay. This is fascinating and very important for the rest of our conversation. I have a little surprise for you. Okay. I, went, I went digging around and I found some really amazing South African music for our breaks tonight. Wow. So this might take you back. I don't know whether it's that old, but it sounds really cool. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Lionel Friedberg, who is an Emmy Award-winning producer. He's produced a lot of the television you watch without knowing who is behind it we shall return but what he said was I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So like you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. 
The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, you, you're you phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Aneta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night. Eventually to be turned into Monday morning, another week for everyone. My guest this morning is Lionel Friedberg, who is an Emmy Award-winning producer. Lionel, how many times does it get boring for you to hear that you're an Emmy Award-winning producer? (laughs) Never, I'll bet. Never. I don't want to sound arrogant about it, but it sounds pretty good when people oh, say Oh, come it. on. Hey. How many Emmys have you actually won? Uh, two. Two? Wow. Yeah. And now, is it true, like, the with the with the Emmys and with the you know Oscars and all that, that just yes. being nominated is a real honor at... Uh, yes, no, maybe? Oh, it's, it's absolutely true, certainly. I mean, uh, a nomination is is as important or as good as a win, but somebody's got to, it's, you've got to whittle it down to one particular <laughs> Some, I mean, Go ahead. It, it, it's recognition by your peers, and, and it's it's really about, you know, just recognizing and and appreciating the fact that you're being recognized for what you've done. And, you know, when people say, you know, you've done a good job of work, I mean, it, you usually five, 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 five people or five movies or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it, all, 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 all of you have, you know the fact that you're being written out of out of thousands i mean how many submissions yeah. oh, are yes. there for uh, emmys and oscars and you know those those very limited awards we see on the shows every well, spring you know if you if you think about the size of the industry in in in, in just in los angeles alone there are probably in the region of 200 uh, 250 maybe 300,000 people involved in the industry wow uh, and that's that's huge, you know. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of people, and, you know. And everyone is trying their best. So when they select five of you and they say, and they say to you, "You did a good job this year. We recognize you." I mean, you know, you you've got to be appreciative of that. As uh, as uh, you know, some people have actually turned it down when George C. Scott was nominated and won the Academy Award in 1971 for playing George Patton in the movie Patton. Right. He turned- because he said, this is a lot of poppycock. He said, you know, it, it, it's not about how, how good you are and being given awards. And he turned it down, which I thought was a little arrogant, but never mind. That was his, you know, his point of view. I think if people say, you know, we want to recognize you for what you did and give you a little statuette for you to put on your mantelpiece, take it and say thank you very much, you know, and go home. Well, and be- didn't, didn't Marlon Brando, instead of physically being there to accept his one year, he sent yes. Willow Wand or so, this gorgeous Indian 
maiden yes. all dressed out in costume and she accepted yeah. it for him. I thought that was a very bizarre, like either be a man and accept it or like yeah. Scott, turn it down, but to have yeah. a surrogate. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, weird. Well, that that's happened on more than one occasion, but that's usually because the person who's been nominated uh, is either involved in another production and is out of the country. I mean, that's, that's happened many times. This was before the era of Zoom and Skype, etc. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um. All right. Let me let me let me uh, go back to those thrilling days of yesteryear. You're yeah. born in South Africa in '44. You're right. growing up in '48. There's this really amazing wall built between you know the cultures. Yeah. When did you wind up realizing I'm out of here? Uh, well, as a child, uh, you know, we were all privileged whites, so we had nannies. We all had a nanny wow. or we had a servant at home. Every white household had that, you know. It's like uh, the old days here and in the United States where you had a black servant, certainly in the Deep South and whatever else, you know. But, I mean, homes, a lot of homes, and even in Europe, you know, you had servants. And in South Africa, you always – there was always a servant, either someone to – do your cooking or your laundry or take care of the kids or whatever else. And uh, so I, I always had a nanny. And um, and I remember every single one of them with enormous affection. I see their faces in front of me, you know, often I think about them. I've got photographs of them. In fact, I've got photographs of every single one of them in my book, Forever in My Veins, because I was so grateful to those, those wonderful human beings, those wonderful people who helped to bring me mm -hmm. up my... I was an only child. You did and, that so skillfully. You know, so my, skillfully. Both, <laughs> both my parents, you know, were working. So uh, I, I had this wonderful nanny. And here's what happened one particular, you know, one day I was going down the street. I must have been probably my first or second year at school. And it was the afternoon. And, you know, I went for a walk with her down the, down the road. She was going to visit a friend. And um, as we went down the road, I was living in a small town just to the east of Johannesburg, literally 20, 20 minutes away from Johannesburg. It's where the big international airport is now. Uh, the town is called Kempton Park. And um, and as we were going down the street, there was a, another black person walking on the other side of the road. Um, and suddenly um, a police van, you know, a cop car uh, arrived. We used to call them black mariahs. That was the terminology that we used for those things. So they pulled up and stopped that person. And, you know, my nanny stopped. I stopped and we watched this going on. And the, the cops got out of the white white policemen, two of them, got out of this, this vehicle and frisked that person. It was a woman and said, you know, I, I could hear it distinctly speaking in Afrikaans, which means, where are your papers? Mm. And if she uh, didn't have the necessary documentation to be in that area at that time, she would have been arrested immediately. So fortunately, she had it. She pulled out this little, it was what they used to call it a passbook. And she pulled out this little book and she gave it to them and they sort of thumbed through it and they said, all right, fine. And they gave it back to her. They were very discourteous towards her, very rude, and drove off. And I said to my nanny, I said, why, why did they do that? What did she do wrong? And she said, I can't explain it to you. I can't. I mean, you know, I was a kid. I was a child. So that night I said to my parents, I said, you know, I saw this event today. And my parents said to me, 
be careful, don't ask questions like that. It was dangerous to even talk about these things because you did not question authority and you did not question the cops. So even you... if you were white and part of the superior class, you were yeah. in a police state. It was not necessarily a police state, but it was discourteous towards authorities, and you didn't want to draw attention to yourself. So you just you went on you went on the radar of being one of them. Yeah, exactly. So you just didn't say anything. You kept quiet, you know. Hmm. And as I grew up, it became very obvious to me that this was an iniquitous system that I was witnessing around me all the time. You go down to the railroad station, or you go down to the bus station, or you go down to the store. And blacks were going in in separate entrances, and we whites were going in and saying, you know, it didn't make any sense. And of course, as I grew up, and when by the time I got to high school, and I was chairman of my debating society, an all boys school, by the way, mm. and I was a bit of a of a rebel because I was very critical of the racial situation, and um, I questioned it, as did some of my friends, not everybody. But we said, this is wrong. This is not the way to. we should be living. We should be more courteous towards our black neighbors. All we're doing is exploiting their labor. And, you know, um, I was very conscious of that, as were, as I said, a handful of, of my friends and certainly the members of my debating society were. And, you know, my father uh, was an immigrant to South Africa. My mother was born in South Africa, but my father was actually born in Latvia. Oh, and my gosh. And he was trained as a watchmaker on, during the times when people still had mechanical watches, you right, know. Right. He was a watchmaker. And so he emigrated to what was then German Southwest Africa, Deutsche Südwest Africa. Today it's called Namibia. Those days it was German Southwest Africa. It was, it was a German colony. And, you know, my father um, grew up in Latvia. He did his watchmaker training um, in in um, in Hamburg, and that's where he left and went to German Southwest Africa. And so he was an immigrant. And from Namibia, from German Southwest Africa, you know, which was a, a huge, huge country with a population of less than a million people, he decided to find his fortune in South Africa. And so as a young man, he was in his 20s. He went there, eventually met my mother, they got married, and then I came about. So, you know, so he he always spoke out against the racist uh, um, uh, realities that were going on around us all the time. And he was, you know, he said, don't talk about it, but it's wrong. He didn't like it. He felt very uncomfortable about, about this. And and uh, and so, you know, in, in the year 1960, my, my father decided to leave the country because that was the height of apartheid. Things were pretty grim at that point. And uh, the feeling was among people who had some sort of liberal uh, thinking said, you know, this is an unsustainable system. This is never going to work. This cannot last. Ultimately, these people are going to rise up against us and probably going to kill us, as they did in the Congo and as they did in many other parts of Africa. Mm. You know, the Algerians rose up against the French. The Congolese rose up against the Belgians. And in many other parts of the country, there was civil war because they wanted their independence and they wanted to be acknowledged as, you know, full-scale citizens. Where, where, where were the Mau Mau uprisings that I heard? Mau Mau was in Kenya. Ah. Uh, so, yes, and that was uh, – that which was a British territory. And the Mau Mau, you know, the, the, the Maasai and the, and the people who lived, the indigenous people of, of Kenya, wanted their independence. I remember the, the National Geographic, which was, of course, our only window in those 
very right. closed years of right. other cultures around the world, the incredibly yes. proud Maasai warriors uh, standing right. there with their spears yes. and their robes and their lions and of course yes and you know we have we have tribes similar to that in south africa by the way south africa has 11 official languages today oh my which gosh gives you an idea of how many different tribal groups there are in south africa or, or ethnic groups if you like but the, the term there is tribes and you know so as a white child you know when we were taught taught history history began with the arrival of the dutch and the arrival of the british oh my my that they, there was no history in Africa. The African had no history. We were taught nothing about those great civilizations and empires that existed before the arrival of the white man. We were taught nothing about that. And, you know, so you, we were conscious of the fact that something was very wrong with all of this. So my father decided to leave the country in 1960 and um, took, a, took a job uh, at a little jewelry store way up in northern Rhodesia, which is right on the border of of the Belgian Congo, in just in order to get out of South Africa, and uh, and 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 my mother, of course, followed, and uh, eventually I followed as well, and that's a, how I eventually got to start my career, because in 1961, television came to Central Africa. It was uh, it was financed by a British company. And um, and the television station was set up in a copper mining district, which is where my father was living and working in this little store. And and like manna out of heaven, you know, I always wanted to make movies, and I did as a as a as a kid at high school. I used to make movies about our sports games, sports you know meetings, uh, um, friends' birthday parties, whatever else. I've been making movies since I was eleven. Did years you old. have your own eight millimeter camera? I was given a, a used eight millimeter camera by a cousin. Ah. And I was 11 years old. So from the age of 11 onwards, I was making movies. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. my, my. Yeah. You that, know. that seems to be a common refrain. I have a, I have a Hollywood friend, uh, Paul Davids, who yes. started uh, with an eight millimeter camera doing sci fi films that yeah. he wrote himself. And he was such a fan of uh, Harry Harryhausen. He did the uh, he did the stop motion with the figures, the clay, yes. and all that, and you of know, course. You know, of course, it's, it's amazing how those early years kind of forecast what we're going to wind up being. Yes, of course. Ray Harryhausen was a genius. I mean, his movies were just extraordinary. Yep, yep. I don't know if folks understand about this, but basically, in the days of film, film ran at 24 frames a second. So what Harryhausen did was to expose one frame at a time with these little models, either made of clay or wire figures or whatever, and frame by frame, he would animate these figures. So when you ran it at 24 frames, it looked like the, the, the creature was moving. I saw Mighty Joe Young the other night, and it yes. was a astonishing how realistic this of course is light years before cgi and all that right. and right. it was it, it, this this gorilla this big gentle gorilla mighty joe young yes. picked up in africa yes. a cautionary tale uh yeah. was done in that stop motion harry uh, ray harryhausen um yeah. modality but it was incredibly realistic still well let me draw your attention to perhaps the the, the beginning of, of of stop motion, which really brought it to the public's attention, was 1933 with King Kong. Yes, of course, of course. And you know that was uh, clinging that to the Empire State Tower, was stop swatting, motion. swatting airplanes. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, the stuff they did those days was just absolutely extraordinary. And uh, my wife and I have just made a film on the man who wrote the music for that movie, uh, a man called Max Steiner. Oh, one of, one of my favorite composers. There you go, Max Steiner, yeah. You know, he wrote the music for Gone with the Wind. and But uh, King Kong, he wrote the music for that too. And he also wrote the music for Casablanca and lots of... Yep, yep, yep. But King Kong, it was an extraordinary film, and his music brought that ape to life uh, because the stop motion was so real and Max's music was so uh, driving and, and scary. Yeah, you know, the audiences were terrified. He was kind of like the, uh, this will be, you know, familiar to some people, the original John Williams. Yeah, exactly. And what Max Steiner was, 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 was the granddaddy of movie music. He was the first guy to say to producers, because, you know, uh, they didn't use music as background music behind the action. If there was a band or an orchestra... In well, during the, the silence, they would have piano players in to player. provide yeah. some kind of sound, but they played almost like anything, you know, yeah. during car chases or train chases. Sure. That would, da -da -da, da -da -da, da -da, you know, right. but, but it, wasn't, it wasn't atmospherically mood-driven. And not, and not written to the action on the screen. You know, yep. someone does something and then you give each character an identity, a leitmotif as it's called. Mm. You give each character a theme. And Max was the first person to, basically Steiner was the first person to do this. So, you know, he was the granddaddy of movie music and uh, it all began, uh, you know, with with, uh, with, with Warner Brothers uh, in, the, in, the, in the 30s. Of course, Warner Brothers were the first people to make a, a talking picture in 1929. L. Johnson Johnson in the in the jazz singer, which mm. was extraordinary, even when you look at it today. Now that wasn't that was not the entire film was sound. There were scenes where L. Johnson sang, and there was a big, large record which looked like the old LPs <laughs> attached to the projector, interlocked mechanically, that played, and that was the when he sang. That was used to synchronize his voice with the action on the screen. You know, a big clunky, difficult system. It was only when the when the when when the invention came about to put to print a soundtrack on the edge of the of of the of, of the, the roll film of the film that things changed and where where the talkies became as popular as they were. And of course, then you know the studios realized that Max Steiner was right. They needed music behind the dramatic scene when two people kiss or two two people fighting a sword fight or whatever. You need music to accentuate the action wow where did i see the other day someone has a max steiner club or an association or something there's a society it's been around for a long long time yeah and uh and the movie that i'm talking about now on max steiner is actually going to be running pretty soon on on two channels i don't know if i can mention them but they'll it'll be available oh, by all means go ahead it's going to be shown on turner classic movies over a period of five years and also on HBO Max, and I think folks should look at that because oh it'll give them God, yes. a real insight into how movie music began and the role that this man played in that story. Hmm. Okay, back to our program. <laughs> yeah. So, so you emigrated with your family when you were in your teens. Yes, uh, exactly. In, in, in high school to Rhodesia. I, I finished high school, and my mother said, when they, when my father decided to leave the country, my mother said, you staying here because you're going to go to college. You're going to go to university and get a degree. And I said, I'm not. And then she said, you are. And I said, I'm not. What uh -huh. I want to do, 
because you know I had been going to the movies right through my childhood and I saw every Tarzan movie every Saturday afternoon at the movies and I saw all those wonderful adventure films you know like King Solomon's Mines and the African Queen and all those things and when my folks decided to go to Central Africa I thought god there's my opportunity I'm going to take my 8mm camera and make movies like that oh my gosh what an idea I said, I'm not going to, I want to make movies. I want to go there. And, you know, they, they, they didn't win the argument, so I followed them up. <laughs> when I got to this area where they were living, I mean, what did I see? There was jungle or bush and trees from horizon to horizon, no movie studios, mm. and cars. That's all there was. So, you know, I thought, what have I done? And then suddenly this television station was, was built to provide entertainment to the miners who were earning a lot of money um, and they needed entertainment. So this television station suddenly arrived in the middle of the African bush and I got a job there. And that was the start of my career. In the mornings, we would have, we used to have educational broadcasts for, for school kids who were living in the bush. And I'm talking about black, black children. And in the afternoon for adult uh, black uh, ethnic groups in the area, there were tribes who would arrive on trucks at the studio and with their drums and their grass skirts. It was magical. <laughs> and then at night we would have Leave It to Beaver and Bonanza on film for the white audiences. You know, it was amazing. But and, you had to do everything in studio because your cameras were the yeah. basic of the size of a small loo. Exactly. That's exactly right. But we did have a film projector, so there was no videotape those days, but we did have film. Nope. Otherwise, everything was live and in the studio. But at night, we had all these local, these shows, that, uh, just two weeks after they were transmitted here in Hollywood and in the United States or in, in England. We had the latest British and uh, American television shows. Well, they would, they, they would fly the film over. Yeah, Exactly. And uh, and we would run them at night. So you know, we had we 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 were watching Doctor Kildare two weeks after you guys were watching them here. Oh you know? my god! <laughs> In the middle of Africa. So so what? so when it started out black and white, of course. Of course. Oh, when absolutely. when did it go color? Were you still oh, there? That, that was way 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 later. But here's the interesting thing, Richard. I think I should tell you this. Uh, you know. I started when the, when the television station was first put up, right? And in 1964, Northern Rhodesia, which is the territory I'm talking about now, um, was given its independence by Britain and was about to become the Republic of Zambia. And why is, why is it called Zambia? Well, it's named after the Zambezi River, and that's why it's Zambia. Uh, why they decided to call it that. But when the decision was made to be, uh, the, 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 uh, the permission was given to the local population for their independence in 1964, in October 1964, the very first thing that the, that the new uh, government did was to nationalize the television station mm. because here, he has a potent media, a medium. I mean, you know, you could, you could, you could use it for, uh, for, for, uh, for, for uh, all kinds of purposes. So the government wanted control of it, and so they basically took it over. And when they did that, they said to everybody, everybody who was white working at the station, "Thanks very much. You've done a great job." Uh, and we understood their thinking, of course. It was now their country, and they said, "But in six months' time, bye bye. We don't want you anymore. Out of here." Hmm. And so. Shattered because I didn't know what to do. Of course, my dream was to go to Hollywood. How old were you then? And then I was uh, at that point. I was I was twenty. 
and uh, we had we had a man working for us, a young guy who wasn't much older than me at home. You know, he used to help my mother at home. Uh, again, you know, black servants. And the next day, he and I were great buddies because we we had a lot of things in common. He was fascinated by photography, and I used to teach him on. We gave him a camera for Christmas one year, ah. and I used to teach him how to use the camera. And his dream was to have a wedding studio one day and all that. And anyway, the day after we were all fired, all of us whites, I went to, to David the next morning and I said, "David, a terrible thing has happened." And he said, "What?" And I said, "You know, we've all been fired." And he said, "Oh no, that's terrible." I said, "Yeah." And I said, "You know, I don't know what I'm going to do." I could go back to South Africa because there was a, a thriving film industry in South Africa, but I didn't particularly want to because it, of apartheid. Yeah. And I, and I said to him, what do you think I should do? You know, I mean, what he certainly had no uh, grasp of the situation or anything, but he thought for a moment and he said, let me ask some questions. And I said, like, from whom? And he said, I'll I'm going to ask some questions. I'll take you to somebody who will help you to find what you should do, where you should go, what you should do with your life. I had no idea what he had in mind. But the next Thursday afternoon, he and I were in my little beat-up VW Beetle, dumping our way on a dirt road into the bush, and he took me to a little village, and there was a little mud hut there, and he said, this is the place. I'm told this is the place. Here is the person who will tell you what to do. And I said, like, you know, in Africa, you don't ask questions. Uh, things happen without uh, making sense too much. And so I just threw my fate to, you know, to the wind. And I said, whatever you have in mind, I'll go along with it. And I went along to this little mud hut with David one particular day. And we went to this, 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 this knocked on the door. And a little old black lady came to the door. She spoke not one word of English. She looked like she was a hundred years old and she invited us into her hut. And she told us to sit on the floor. And David said in English to me, she, he said, she wants you to sit on the floor. And on the floor was a grass mat. And on this grass mat was a little bag, a little animal skin bag. And this little old lady, she said to me in Bemba, she said to David and he translated, she, he, she said, tell him to pick up the bag, blow into it, say his name, and then turn the bag upside down, which is what I did. Okay, and hold it there. Hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. Okay. Perfect place to pause. This is called, folks, The Cliffhanger. If you're familiar with old-time movies and Saturday afternoon serials in the theater, my guest this morning is Lionel Friedberg, who, as you can tell, has been everywhere, done almost everything, and has lived to tell the tale. All the way from South Africa to Hollywood and television in the United States. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we're playing South African oldies tonight as our bumpers. We shall return. Oh, she 
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.